I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. This morning we're continuing our Epiphany series on the Sermon on the Mount. And halfway through our gospel passage today, as we make our turn into chapter 5 of Matthew, we've arrived at the sermon's beginning. We're told that seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountainside, sat down, and began to teach his disciples, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and so on. Well, these blesseds that we find in verses 3 through 12 are famously known as the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. Now last week I mentioned that portions of the Sermon on the Mount are among some of the most misunderstood passages in all of the Bible. Well, I would contend that the Beatitudes might very well top that list. And this morning as I draw again heavily on the writing of Dallas Willard as I did last week, we're going to see why. Now one thing everybody can agree on is that these Beatitudes are answering the question, Who is blessed? Who is blessed? However, over the years, the most common interpretation that's developed is that these Beatitudes are a list of human characteristics that God prefers in people and therefore will elicit God's blessing when people have these characteristics. So, according to this interpretation, apparently God prefers people who are poor in spirit, whatever that means, as well as those who are meek or merciful Pure in heart or peacemakers. Now, none of those seem too far-fetched. But interpreting the Beatitudes in this way would also mean that God likes people to mourn. And God likes people to be persecuted. Which is a little less comfortable of an idea. But if we could take a poll of Christians, not just now, but even over, say, the past millennia, the past thousand years the majority of them, the majority of believers, would probably interpret the Beatitudes in this way. I myself did for years. and I've even preached a few sermons in this vein, in this pulpit. But to understand the Beatitudes in this way is not without its consequences. Dallas Willard tells a story of a woman he once met when he was teaching on the Beatitudes who said that her son had stopped identifying as a Christian and left the church after being taught that this is what the Beatitudes meant, that they were a picture of the ideal Christian. You see, this guy was a strong, intelligent military man. So when he read the Beatitudes with its list of the poor, sad, and weak, and mild... He came to the honest conclusion that he could never be like that. That that was not him. Now this guy wasn't perfect. He certainly could have made changes in his life for the better. 
But can we say this is true? Can we say that the Beatitudes are a picture of the person God hoped to make that man into? And not just him, but all people. Can we say this is truly the model for an ideal Christian? Well, unfortunately, most believers think so. But the most glaring problem with interpreting the Beatitudes in this way is that it turns them into a message not that brings life to people, but that brings death. What do I mean? Well, think about what happens when we read the Beatitudes this way as a model for the ideal Christian. We either feel guilty for not having any of the qualities on this list and therefore for apparently failing to be the people God wants us to be or we feel guilty because we honestly don't even want to have any of these characteristics on this list. I mean, how many people do you know who say, you know, I really love mourning. You know, when something happens in my life that is so devastating that I become inconsolable and can't even function, I mean, that is living. Whew, I love that. You know anybody that says that? So for anyone who scans the Beatitudes and can't find a quality they can identify with, they're not going to hear them as good news, are they? They're going to hear them as what? As bad news. Under this interpretation. On the other hand, for those who do identify with feeling maybe poor or sad or weak, well, reading the Beatitudes this way doesn't do them any good either. Because now they believe that God especially favors them over other people. For them, the Beatitudes become a source of pride. So if this most popular way to interpret the Beatitudes is flawed, if Jesus isn't teaching us who is blessed by giving us a list of conditions or characteristics that will elicit God's blessing, then what is Jesus saying? How is Jesus answering the question of who is blessed? Well, that really can't become clear until we first back up and consider what has occurred in Matthew just before Jesus launches into these Beatitudes. That's really the only way we can properly understand what Jesus is up to. If we look at where our passage began today, in chapter 4 verse 23, there Matthew says, And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So through Jesus... God provides care for these people who have some very acute needs, I think we can agree. Jesus is healing the sick, the demon-possessed, paralytics. Now just before this part of Matthew, just before this was the passage we looked at last week, right? Where Jesus launched his public ministry. 
And you'll recall that at that time, the only thing Jesus had been preaching was simply, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if you weren't here with us last week, we talked about how even though many believe, many believe the phrase kingdom of heaven refers to the afterlife, Jesus was actually announcing something available right here and now. The kingdom of heaven really refers to what happens when we live in reliance upon Jesus and therefore live in his wisdom and power. Well, as we take all this into account, as we move into the beginning of our passage today, reports of these miracles have spread as far as Syria, right? People are coming from as far as Syria to be healed. And they begin following Jesus everywhere he goes. And so it is at this point, seeing these crowds, that Jesus decides it's time to teach more extensively about the life of the kingdom. This will be what his whole Sermon on the Mount will be about. The life of the kingdom. But he begins it with these beatitudes. Because he and his disciples are surrounded by crowds filled with people who had just received God's care and blessing through Jesus. Right? And for many in this crowd to be blessed in this way honestly would have been a huge surprise in these days. A huge surprise. You see, the Judaism of Jesus' day taught that God very clearly preferred some people above others. The prevailing belief in those days was that God particularly favored or blessed those who were especially religious and learned in God's word particularly those who followed this additional set of laws that the religious leaders had come up with. And it was hard for anybody to really argue with this because the Jews in Jesus' day had also come to believe that wealth and prosperity were marks of God's blessing. And the powerful religious class also tended to be the very wealthy and well-born. On the other hand, when it came to someone who was poor or even perhaps chronically ill, this was seen to be evidence that God didn't favor them. You understand? That they weren't blessed. And often it was assumed that, that the causes of such conditions must be that the person wasn't just faithful enough. Right? So that was the prevailing belief in those days. And yet here, right before Jesus and the disciples are hundreds of people gathered whom Jesus had just healed. And he hadn't first evaluated them to determine how religious they were or how spiritual they were. He had just healed them. That's all. So what this means is that among these who were blessed through Jesus would have been plenty who didn't, don't necessarily know their Bible who would have never been called on, no one would ever think to call on to lead a service or a prayer. 
Even folks unable to make heads or tails of religion at all would have been among those Jesus had healed. And yet God had just demonstrated his utmost care for them for no other reason that they were simply willing to come to Jesus. That was it. That was all that was required. Isn't it? So see, in them, Jesus sees a perfect opportunity to teach. Because he recognized that in them, he now has a concrete, a concrete example, a concrete answer to the question of who is blessed or who can be blessed. Because this crowd demonstrates the truth that anyone can be. That if the life of the kingdom is where true blessing is found, then true blessing is a possibility for anyone and everyone, no matter what the world thinks of them or what they think of themselves. That's some gospel. See, see, when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's essentially pointing to this crowd and saying, see these people whom no one particularly admires spiritually or religiously, they have been blessed. They have been cared for by heaven simply because they have come to me. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I love the way Willard rephrases this line of the Beatitudes. He says, the spiritual zeros... The spiritually bankrupt, deprived, and deficient. The spiritual beggars, those without a wisp of religion, are blessed when the kingdom of heaven comes upon them. Now, spiritual zeros is not the way most Christians often understand or have been taught to understand the phrase poor in spirit, even though that's literally basically what the Greek is saying. Right? Most Christians think of it quite the opposite or have been taught quite the opposite. Somehow, bizarrely, the poor in spirit has today become thought to refer as a spiritual virtue. Right? Something to strive towards somehow. And this isn't just everyday church people who interpret it this way. There are even respected Bible translations like the New English Bible who have translated poor in spirit as humble-minded. Like a virtue. Right? Presenting as some praiseworthy condition rather than some sense of spiritual lack or poverty as it was originally meant. But if the popular understanding misses the mark of what Jesus is saying, how? How could so many people have gotten this so wrong over the years? Well, Willard suggests one reason it's attractive to interpret the poor in spirit as a virtue reflects our intense need that we have as humans to identify something, anything that God desires or even requires in us. Isn't that our natural human impulse? Right? God, just tell me what I need to do to be blessed. I'll do it. Just give me a list. 
Just tell me how I can qualify for this kingdom of yours. I'll make it happen. But that is a distortion of the gospel of Christ. That's not the gospel of Christ. That's a gospel of works. You know, one reason we can know something is awry here is by, by, by asking ourselves, where would Jesus be in that approach? You know, if being humble-minded is all we have to do, then we have blessedness cornered. We don't need Jesus, right? If we can tell other people, hey, just be humble. Just be humble. And, and if you're not interested in being humble, just skip down the list and, and, and manage to find a way to mourn or, or to be meek or, or get yourself persecuted. Then you'll really be in like Flynn. Let one of those secure your blessedness. We don't need Jesus at all if that's the game we're playing. But if we think the Beatitudes can be applied in a way that secures blessing but bypasses Jesus in doing so by just being humble or meek or mourning, isn't that a pretty good indication we're misunderstanding them? The Beatitudes are not a teaching on how to be blessed. In fact, they aren't instructions to do anything. Nor do they indicate conditions especially pleasing to God. Jesus isn't saying that people are better off for being poor in spirit, for having no spirituality to them at all. That would be a contradiction. Or in Luke's version of the Beatitudes, it's Jesus says poor. Jesus isn't saying people are better off for being poor. Right? Willard points out that there are plenty of poor people who are not blessed, who are entrenched in sin their whole lives, bitter against God, bitter against man, and remain anything but blessed. See, it's not because someone is poor or because someone is poor in spirit that the heavens are open to them. It's because of Jesus. Period. We don't earn it. With the first beatitude, Jesus teaches us that in him, the kingdom of heaven, that is a life of true blessing, is available to all people, no matter their condition. You may have noticed that the first of these beatitudes is in the present tense, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs right now. You guys just saw it. I just blessed all these people. That's what he's saying. Right? Whereas the rest of the Beatitudes are in the future tense. Right? This is because with the rest of the Beatitudes, Jesus is teaching us all the ways that living in the kingdom of heaven is a blessing. The rest of the Beatitudes are promises of the life of the kingdom. So let's take a moment just to walk through these just briefly. In verse 4, Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is a promise for the person whose spouse has just left them, or who's lost a child. Those who lose their careers or pensions in an economic downturn. These are the heartbroken. 
But as they see the kingdom in Jesus, as they enter it and learn to live in it, they find comfort. Their tears turn to laughter. Then he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek are the unassertive, the intimidated, the shy, those who lack confidence. But as the kingdom of the heaven enfolds them, they they come to realize that the whole earth is their father's. And therefore, the whole earth is theirs as they need it. They come to realize that because the Lord is their shepherd, they shall not want. Then there are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, verse 6. For they shall be satisfied. This refers to people who burn with a desire to make things right. Now, this could mean two things. This could mean that they burn with a desire to overcome a wrong in themselves, right? A habitual sin, let's say, that that makes them cry out before God, desperate for Him to give them freedom. This is a promise about that. But it could also refer to those who've been severely wronged, right? Who have suffered some terrible injustice. Those who've been victimized or abused. Or whose children have been victimized. Even these can be satisfied in the kingdom of heaven. As Willard says, the kingdom has a chemistry that can transform even the past. And make the terrible losses humans experience seem insignificant in the satisfying greatness of a God who restores our soul and fills us with goodness. In verse 7, Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now the world scoffs at being merciful, doesn't it? Most consider it a good way to get taken advantage of. And of course, this is true outside of heaven's rule. But if living in the kingdom, those who are merciful, they themselves find mercy from God who meets their needs far beyond any claim they might have on him. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now these are the perfectionists. This one's me. There are others here that I identify with, but... Perfectionism, as many of you probably have observed, is certainly one of my sins. As Willard says, perfectionists can be a pain to everyone, but are even harder on themselves... Endlessly picking over their own motivations. He says they can tell you what is wrong with everything. Well, I love the promise here. Blessed are the perfectionists, for they will see God. And when they do, they will find what they've been looking for. 
they will find someone perfect. Someone who truly is good enough. Ever since I read that, I've been trying to implement it, right? When I'm in my perfectionist mindset, something doesn't satisfy me. Lord, show me you. This isn't perfect, but you are. What about blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The peacemakers are those who are always stuck in the middle. Think of policemen. Now there are kernels of righteousness to be found in both the Blue Lives Matter and the Black Lives Matter movements. Matter movements. But one thing we can all agree on, I think, is that being a policeman in 2017 is a thankless job. But according to Jesus, for those whose aim is to bring good to people who are often in the wrong themselves, which most policemen are doing on a daily basis, for them, they are to be like they are like sons of God is the promise. Meaning when they do that, when they're trying to bring good to people who, who are wrong, they resemble God, just like sons resemble a father. Why? Because God himself is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Now two more. In verse 10, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These are the ones who refuse to go along with something that is wrong. It could be something unethical in their family or in their job. The whistleblowers. The truth is that their lives can often be, ru- be ruined by refusing to do what is wrong. At least ruined in the world's eyes. And yet in the kingdom of heavens, even they can enjoy a blessed life. Then Jesus' final beatitude is, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is for everyone who has been insulted or persecuted for taking up with this guy named Jesus. That our world so hates. Those who have the audacity to proclaim that Jesus rose from the dead. The gall to believe that he knows more about life in this world than anybody else does. Well the world may think we're idiots. But our reputation stands high before God. Whose love cannot be taken away from us. Gee, if I didn't know any better, these Beatitudes are beginning to sound like awfully good news. But they are good news for our day because they teach us that in Jesus, the possibility of blessing, the possibility of living a good life is available to anyone who will come to him or really open their lives to him. Which is actually a pretty different message than what our society tells us. Right? Our society does not send us the message that the good life, that the blessed life is open to, to anyone and everyone. 
If we were to judge by television or the magazine covers we see, there are all sorts of superficial uh, conditions or characteristics that determine that. Therefore, we can infer that there's a whole list of conditions that our culture seems to believe disqualify people from the good life. Like being unattractive or overweight, unstylish or old in age, or not being in a romantic relationship. What a nightmare. (laughs) Some people feel damned if they do, damned if they don't on that one. Our culture seems to think these are the sort of qual- sorts of qualities that makes one's prospect for a good life slim. But Willard says that Jesus is saying just the opposite. That essentially Jesus is pointing to the crowd around him and saying, See there? Blessed are the physically repulsive. Blessed are those who smell bad. Blessed are the twisted, the misshapen, the deformed. Blessed are the too big, the too little, the too loud, the too bald, the too fat, the too old. Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven, you see. That's where blessings found. But beyond superficial appearances, and I'm getting close to done, I know we're restless. Beyond superficial appearances, there's a further class of people our society tends to assume have completely disqualified themselves from the blessed life. These are the flunkouts, the dropouts, the burnouts, the drug heads, the divorced, the HIV positive, the brain damaged, the incurably ill, the barren. The pregnant too many times or at the wrong time. The overemployed, the underemployed, the unemployed, the unemployable. The lonely, the incompetent, the stupid. The emotionally starved and the emotionally dead. And so on and so on and so on. Our society sees those people as beyond any hope of a good life, of blessing. And yet the gospel insists that earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. At the end of our passage, Jesus is saying that it's common people such as this. Not the best and brightest on the human scale, but those similar to the people in the crowds around Jesus, right? Those who had just found such blessing. It's to these that God gives truth and love and power. Making them light for their surroundings. And bringing a saltiness that is true flavor, divine flavor in the times through which they live. But there's even one final group that remains shockingly eligible for such blessings. And that is the especially immoral, seemingly irredeemable ones. The murderers, the child molesters, the racists, drug lords and pornographers, war criminals and terrorists, 
the Jeffrey Dahmers and Dylan Roofs, the Bashar al-Assads. Surely they're beyond the possibility of God's blessing, we surmise. Surely. But even people like these are received by God and can become salt and light if they come to rely on Jesus and make him their companion in his kingdom. That's the gospel. So the gospel of the Beatitudes is that no human condition excludes the one from the possibility of blessedness. That for anyone who opens themselves up to God, he will come with his care and deliverance. And that is surely good news. Amen.